Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. As soon as I started writing about a missing girl, I didn't want to write a novel about a missing girl. You know, it, it's it's been done a lot, and it's often done in a way which ends up being about the body of a missing girl, and 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 the, the girl kind of just is is becomes an object, um, and. I, I didn't want to go down that route, um, but nevertheless, that was my starting point, and and I had this image in my mind of the search party and the whole village turning out to look for this child who's who's vanished, and it was such a strong image in my mind, and and as soon as I started writing about it, I found lots of characters and lots of kind of interrelationships between these characters, and I was really excited about writing about this this village that I'd begun to invent. So I didn't want to let go of the idea, but at the same time, I didn't want it to become a book that was a kind of crossword puzzle for the reader. Of like, here are some clues, here's some more clues, here's something you think might have happened, uh, and it turns out this has happened. I just, I, I don't have a problem with those kind of books, but it wasn't the kind of book I wanted to write. What are the benefits of living in a small town? And is non-fiction the new fiction? Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, I'm coming to you from the 2017 West Cork Literary Festival in beautiful breezy Bantry, where the best in Irish and international writing talent gave a series of workshops, readings and improvised chats to the backdrop of Bantry Bay. This year's lineup included the likes of Sarah Moss, Carol Drinkwater, Lara Marlowe, Colm Tobin, Anne Enright, John McGregor, Eileen Battersby, Emer McBride and the great Graeme Norton. So tonight we're going to enjoy some highlights from the festival. First up, Angola Thought Me Beckett. The compelling words of British writer, memorist and journalist Lara Pawson. My name is Lara Pawson and um, I'm here at the West Court Literary Festival for a... I was invited to have a conversation about my um, second book called This Is The Place To Be, published by CB Editions. Uh, yeah, I had a conversation with the wonderful novelist Sarah Baum, who was extremely generous and clever. Um, I've never been here before. I have written one other book. My first book was called In the Name of the People, Angola's Forgotten Massacre, published by I.B. Taurus. That was a more conventional piece of writing. My, my, my recent book, This is the Place to Be, is an experimental, fragmentary memoir. That would wrap it up in three words. The first book was um, investigative reportage, um, but written in the first person. So kind of unconventional in some ways. Um, and I'm now working on fiction. So I've moved steadily further and further away from my, um, I suppose, main career, if I ever had a career, as a journalist at the BBC. Um, before that, I worked for an MP. I've taught politics, but I was too strict. Um, and now I do a bit of book reviewing. I work a bit with refugees. Um, I live in London for my sins. Uh, I'm very angry about Brexit. I could keep telling you lots of things about myself. I'm 49. Uh, that's enough. Uh, really well done in your talk today. It was very, very interesting. And congratulations on the book. Um, I was interested to hear that um, the memoir started out. You described it as a warm-up, um, a warm-up piece that you wrote for an experimental theatre group. Yeah. It's a very um, interesting approach to take. Well, yeah, I mean, it was a slightly alarming thing when it became 
a real piece of work that people were going to listen to in the Battersea Arts Centre in South London. In fact, it also went to Belgium uh, and was 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 played there in a theatre in in in. in um, in Belgium, um, but it started out as a warm-up exercise for a, a kind of prompt that I was sent by a theatre director in Manchester, who said, "You know, read these texts. Texts by um, Joe Brainard, American um, poet, modernist writer, um, Georges Perec, um, Edouard Levé. Uh, so basically, French and American." poets, avant-garde poets and writers. I was sent four texts, told to listen to them and to respond to them in any way I saw fit. And basically I sat down at my computer, I read the texts, in one of the cases I watched a video, and uh, I started writing. And basically I wrote the first uh, 20, 25,000 words of This Is The Place To Be, although I didn't know then it was going to be This Is The Place To Be. I thought it was just something I'd be sending to this theatre director that would then probably get trashed and we'd, we'd produce something completely different. Um, and to cut quite a long story short, it ended up becoming actually, I suppose, a sound installation. It was played, it was recorded uh, by a woman called Kathy Naden, an actor, and um, it was played out of a radio in what appeared to be a bit like a sitting room and it was called non-correspondence so it was effectively I suppose the sort of stuff that you never hear from a foreign correspondent it was the kind of anti-correspondence so it was called non-correspondence and it ran as a radio piece sound installation inside a theatre um, and then um, I went on holiday and I met a man called Weaver and Weaver said to me you should try and get this published as a book and I said you know you must be fucking joking I don't want people to read this stuff because it's quite personal um my husband said yeah, you know he's right why not try and get it published as a book so I ended up sending it to CB Editions Charles Boyle he really liked it he said expand it I wrote another 20,000 words and it became the book Lara, it's, un, it's an unbelievably courageous uh, piece of writing. Um, as I was progressing through it, I couldn't believe just how honest and rawly honest you were. And I, I don't think I could um, commit some of the stuff that you've written to paper and be as honest with myself. And I don't think a lot of people have such honest conversations with themselves at certain stages in their life. And I'm just wondering, how vulnerable did you feel when you were committing some of your thoughts to paper? Because you write about sexual violence, you write about um, issues of relationships, to abortion yeah, some family yeah. stuff you touch on a lot of heavy duty stuff yeah, yeah. and within all of that you also um, jump around within um, how you tell the story so there's a flippancy in one way it's very very creative yeah I mean I think that one of the reasons it could be courageous as you call it although I'm not sure it was courageous I think it was because I just thought I was doing this for myself I was just warming up for whatever this theatre director was going to ask me to do next I didn't imagine it was going to become a final text so it was a bit like writing a diary you know not that you'd write a diary like that some people might but it, I didn't imagine it was going to become something that would ever be heard by other people so I think that was what create what has created in the end this sense of it being very brave is because effectively I was just talking to myself and you know I'm sure that all of us we have thoughts and ideas that we wouldn't and desires that we would never share with other people because we're ashamed of them or we're embarrassed or we think they're wrong um, so then when it became a real 
thing and a kind of work of art that was going to be presented to a public, I was quite uneasy and I didn't tell anybody I knew about it, apart from my husband obviously did know about it because I thought, God, I don't want anyone to know that this is me. Then when it became a book, yeah, I was... I did have a few moments when I thought maybe I should pull it, maybe I shouldn't do this. Um, But I tend to be somebody who... You know, I think, for example, when I was working in Angola, you know, years ago as a journalist, I think that, you know, I used to go into places that were very dangerous where the war was taking place. And people say, oh, you must be very brave. And I thought, I'm I'm not very brave. It's more that I'm quite good at overcoming my fears. But I do feel very, very afraid. But I just think you only live once. Just, Just see what happens. Go out there and see what happens. And I think with the book, I thought, fuck it, you know, I might be dead tomorrow. Who knows what's coming around the corner? We've got so many weird things happening in the world. Just just do it and see what happens and to hell with it. And I am quite spontaneous in that way. And I've been amazed by the response to it, that people have been very generous and it has connected with, obviously not everybody, but quite a lot of people um, have, it's resonated with them. And people who've surprised me. I mean, I've had responses from old men from very different backgrounds to me it was an old man from a very working class background I met in London recently who heard me at a reading and he said I could identify with 85% of that can I give you a hug and I thought blimey I've just been talking about my genitals you know and I was absolutely kind of gobsmacked that he he felt like that and I thought maybe it's just that people I don't know there's a kind of human beings you know we Mm. can connect with each Mm. other and we have to take risks to Mm. do that Mm. but possibly also that some readers will um, be so refreshed by, you know, the the brutal honesty in it, and that we live to a degree with a lot of phony stuff, with a lot of right. controlled media and understandings, and there is a huge freedom to reading the book. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. It's f- interesting for me to hear you saying that because I suppose, you know, um, you're right. There is a lot of bullshit, isn't there? Mm. But then, you know. Yes, there's lots of that, but there's also many, many moments that happen in all our lives where we connect with real people. Mm. You see people, certainly where I live, you see people begging. I see 11-year-olds selling drugs outside my back gate. Um, I see um, um, the lady and the man across the road, a very old couple, who can't find anyone to look after them. They end up getting sent to a home where they're not being looked after properly. We, we, we have reality thrust mm. in our face all the time, and I think... I do feel, I suppose, from my experience of life, um, I feel it's really important to to cut through the crap and and say it as you see it. And I and I think that's probably what quite a lot of people feel, and perhaps do. I think a lot of people do that in their day to day lives, but you don't hear about them. You know, people who work as teachers or people nurses, they work with that kind of thing every day, but they're just not writing books about it, so we don't hear about about them. But they're dealing with you know, wiping people's asses and clearing up horrible cuts and things. They have to deal with that reality all the time. So the least you can do as a writer, which is a very undangerous job, you're just sitting at your computer tapping on tapping on keys, is to try and be as brave as you can. Surely that's one of the things we have to try and do. Can we talk about your time in Angola? And I know that you've quite a um, personal relationship with the country. You've a lot of friends from there that you describe some of the most beautiful times in your life were in Angola and also some of the most shocking and challenging. 
You talk a bit about um, how being, you, you describe yourself as being quite paranoid or you were lived quite a paranoid existence over there and that in one way that paranoia allowed you to be a good journalist and kept you safe. I thought that was very interesting. Yeah, that's a really interesting point because I think I'm still quite paranoid. If you spoke to my, if my husband was standing here, he'd just roll his eyes and say, well, she's so bloody paranoid, it drives me around the bend. Um, but I think that, it's interesting, the idea of paranoia and journalism um, being a successful combination. I wonder if that's actually true. I think it's that I don't trust people in power anywhere, whether they're British, Angolan, Irish, you know, doesn't, I don't care where they're from, I don't trust power and I don't trust people with power and I think once you begin to see how power works it, it can make you paranoid I mean, if you follow the news of Trump and his sons and Russia crikey, if people aren't paranoid yet I kind of think paranoia is a quite a healthy response to the world we live in but I just want to go back to the point you made about Angola because I feel like I have to be quite honest about this. You know, I went to Angola for the first time nearly 20 years ago in 1998 um, and I was there for two and a half years and then I um, went back three, four times for several months at a time. I haven't been there since 2008 um, and I have some very good friends near, near where I live in London who are Angolan. But I think I would be lying to... if. If it would be wrong of me to give the impression that I'm still deeply connected with the country because the country altered me profoundly. It altered the way I see the world. I think the experience of living in a place with a, with a, with a war and a war that had been fuelled by foreign powers, America, Soviet Union, Cuba, among others, you start to... If I, if I had a naive understanding of the world from growing up in a very privileged middle-class background in London, it was blown apart while I was there. And it's shaped the way I understand Europe now. It's shaped the way I understand British history. So I'm much more critical now of, and did become so while I was there, I started to understand how much hypocrisy there was in Europe and, and, and the West, about particularly about sub-Saharan African countries. So I think that... I wouldn't want to kind of claim a relationship with Angola that was false, because I think in some ways that's almost a past part of me. Um, and my, my time living there and living in places like Ivory Coast and Mali has actually made me look at Britain in a different way. And now that we live in this kind of awful joke that is Brexit Britain, I feel... Um, I feel I need to dig into my own country and actually, you know, the fight now is there and I need to stay there and confront the truth of what a joke my country is and the kind of arrogance of my country, sort of thinking it's still some kind of empire. And I need, the battle needs to take place there. There's, 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 you know, and all the migrants who are trying to come in and who are being kicked out, we've got so many problems that we need to, we need to face there. So I've, I mean, I'm slightly going off on a tangent, but I suppose what I'm saying is that having seen countries torn apart far away, I think it's not that far off in Britain at the moment. And I suppose violence isn't just a factor that happens in well, war. Yeah, I yeah. know that you, you yeah. describe in, in, in the memoir the how somebody was murdered on your road yeah, yeah. and you're living in London. Yeah. That's the thing. I mean, I think I've been a bit taken aback by some people who said, someone the other night said, oh, you talk about the, you know, your book's all about brutality and violence in Angola. And I said, no, it's not. I said, the whole point of the book is actually to show how much violence there is in Britain, people being murdered, 
Um, I've suffered sexual violence only in Britain, not in other places. It's happened in Britain. It actually happened in London. You know, women get raped or are beaten up by their husbands on my street. You know, it's so I think there's sort of, yeah, I try to challenge that and to say, look at where we come from and look at our history. We export violence. I mean, we're experts at this stuff. Violence is part of human nature. It's not something particular to certain groups in certain parts of the world. Yeah, I feel very strongly about that. I was very interested in what you wrote about and how um, members of the public, wherever there are, whether they're from America, England, Europe, wherever, that they misunderstand war and that they misunderstand the work of journalists. Obviously, you've spent a lot of time thinking about this and it's um, and reflecting on it. Do you find it very frustrating, possibly, how war is presented by media? There's almost the turn-on factor, the excitement factor, and um, it's all so stimulating in one way. But there is the brute reality of the, the, the deep impact on the ground. And that sometimes we just walk away from all of that and move on to the next thing. Yeah, I think it's... I mean, it's funny because there's so many contradictory things. I mean, I can remember reporting on a plane crash in Luanda. A plane had come down, it had crashed in Luanda, on top of a shanty town. So lots of houses had been cra- crashed into and people had been killed and there were body parts. You could see arms and legs. Um, And when I did my live two-way, my live interview to London about this crash, after I'd finished the interview, the editor said that I had been too graphic in my descriptions of what I could see around me. And I felt then very strongly, look, I can see bits of bodies, I can see um, people screaming and people in state of high trauma. That is what's happening. That's what I'm going to report. Of course, you know, part of the debate on all of this stuff is that there are very violent films that people are seeing because of 24-hour, 24-7 TV news. People just see recirculating images all the time of violence. And this has actually happened quite close to home now with things like the Grenfell, Grenfell Tower. The, the fire that happened there was, was, for me, quite a major turning point, actually, in sort of... Britain's understanding of violence because the way it was reported was the way that we quite often see um, other parts of the world being reported and the way that the journalists quite a lot of not all of them but some of the journalists went in and just stuck their microphones under people's noses who were still didn't know if their children were alive or if their neighbours had got out of the tower but the journalists were so hungry to get the news to send back to their editor that that seemed not to matter. Um, I, I mean, I think it's difficult because I think we do need to know the truth and I think people do need to report what they can see and we need to face the horrors of this world straight on and not duck out of them. But because of the, the, the mediated world in which we live, because you can turn on the telly and see violence all the time, everywhere, anywhere, frankly... You worry, I worry, that we are, that when you see it, you're not actually understanding it as something that's happening to to other human beings. And that was one of the reasons in the end why I left uh, Angola as a correspondent, was because I felt I was becoming, I worried that I was becoming numb to what I was seeing. So I would go into uh, a centre of displaced people who were very, very malnourished, and I wasn't as upset as I first was, inevitably, because I was getting used to it. But it worried me that I was becoming too thick-skinned. And I think, in the, for me, that's a sort of permanent project, to not become 
so blasé about homeless people in London that I don't stop and notice them and I don't stop and talk to them and I don't stop and ask them how they are because each individual homeless person is suffering and has a story to tell. I think to some extent, I, mean, I don't want to sound too kind of poncy and I don't want to get too philosophical and about this, but I, but I do think that in life we need to remain alert to human suffering and I don't think the mediated world helps us do that. Writer and journalist Lara Pawson. This is a place to be is published by CB Editions and retails for just under 12 euros in paperback. Now, on Sunday evening last, novelist John Boyne and Sarah Moss took to the stage at the Maritime Hotel. Afterwards, I got a chance to talk to John about his latest book, The Heart's Invisible Furies. I asked John what prompted the novel. Uh, well, I started writing it um, about 18 months before the Equal Rights Marriage Referendum of 2015. And it was around the time when we knew that referendum was going to happen. There was a very strong chance it was going to pass. So I was thinking about that. I was thinking about how Ireland had changed so much in a relatively short space of time. Uh, I was a student in Trinity in the early 90s when homosexuality was still a criminal offence. It wasn't uh, decriminalised until 1993. And it occurred to me that Ireland, which had been this um, a real bastion of conservatism, Catholicism over the years, in you know less than a quarter century, would go from there to being the first country in the world that would vote by public plebiscite for equal rights marriage. I've lived in Ireland all my life. I am Irish. I wanted to see how that change had come about. Tell me, what does it mean to be a gay man in Ireland today? I think things are very, very different. I mean, it, it's, it depends on what age you are. You know, I'm 46 now. If I was 18, it would mean absolutely nothing. You know, kids these days are so open to each other's sexuality, to difference. If anything, kids today embrace that uh, in a way that they didn't when I was 18. And if I was a lot older than I am, if I was in my 70s or 80s, I think there would be a part of me that would feel happy about the changes, but resentful too, that, you know, why weren't, why wasn't, my life easier? Why wasn't, why wasn't things different when I was younger? So I'm in the middle age group there where, um, where I mean, nobody cares anymore, I don't think. It's, it's never been an issue for me. I came out to my family and my parents when I was, I don't know, 21, 22. And it never really, I don't have any great trauma stories, you know, um, thankfully. Uh, I know a lot of people would have, but I just don't really. Um, my family were very accepting of it and I just kind of got on with my life. So it's, um, I guess the only difficulty is still kind of meeting people because it's still a small percentage of the population. And, you're, you know, if you're, if you're hoping to, I was in a relationship for a long time, for 11 years, but sadly that came to an end. And now at this stage of my life, it's a little harder to meet somebody available. 
It's a very uh, funny novel, but it's also a very hard uh, read in parts. And we get some very brutal, bigoted scenes in it. I'm just wondering, you you must have had mixed emotions when you were writing the novel, did you? Yeah, I did. I mean, I... I, I knew this was going to be a long novel. It's about 600 pages because it's set over such a vast um, terrain of history. Uh, and I knew that in doing that, I, I needed to lighten the mood a little bit at times. I, I wanted it to be funny. I've never really written anything funny before. Most of my novels, uh, any, anybody out there who's, who's read some of them will know that they're, they're quite sad most of the time. So I wanted to kind of just make this a little bit lighthearted. I didn't want Cyril to be a victim of his times in too in too deep a way. Uh, I wanted him to struggle a little bit in his earlier life, but I wanted him generally to be a fairly optimistic sort because his mother, who we meet in the early chapter of the book, who's only 16 when she's uh, thrown out of her parish for being pregnant and unmarried, uh, is not a victim either. She is a strong, independent girl, particularly for that time. So I wanted Cyril to inherit something of that from her. And I thought the way to do that was uh, to, to just make him optimistic that no matter what happened to him no matter what was thrown at him through his life he would somehow manage to to keep going what i liked about cyril was he was a although he was very resilient he could really improvise in different situations and he was a uh, big enough to be able to work with and engage with people who were vastly different from him who didn't share the same views and also who were potentially very judgmental of him well he's on a journey through the book of education himself both uh, during the time that he's living in Ireland and when he moves to Amsterdam and subsequently to New York uh, before coming back to Ireland as an older man. So he is trying to understand not just the country that he came from, but who he is himself. He struggles with this a lot in his teenage years, but eventually he accepts that this is who he is, this is how he was born, and he's intelligent enough to wonder why is it that at times people are so difficult towards him, so um, unaccepting of, of who he is. Did you learn a lot about forgiveness as you're writing this book? Because Cyril is a champion of forgiveness in lots of areas of his life. And he um, he sees all the possibilities that that can offer within it. I think I learned a lot about that in my previous novel, The History of Loneliness, which was a novel um, that explored the child abuse scandals in the church. And I approached that book as somebody who had spent a long time feeling um, very angry towards the church, uh, so angry that I, I wouldn't have been able to write that book 10 years earlier. I approached that book trying to see what it would be like to be a priest today, an elderly priest who has committed no criminal acts, but is kind of tarred with the same brush as as his, uh, as his those who have committed those acts. So in that, in that way, I was trying to understand forgiveness there. I was trying to kind of approach it from a less judgmental way. That was my first book set in Ireland, and I followed it up with the, the Hearts Invisible Furies. So I think I'd already started on that myself, and my own way trying to understand the country that I've come from and experiences that have happened to me over my life. Doyle Aaron and um, a lot of different personalities from Ireland's past feature in um, in the novel and it made for very entertaining reading because um, there is those who are uh, TDs for frequenting the canteen um, coming in for their cups of coffee but we also get towering literary figures and other areas are alluded to other characters or personalities in Irish life. What were you trying to do there? That's something I've been doing since my first novel, The Thief of Time, um, which was published about 17 years ago now. I've always liked the idea of bringing real-life characters into the fiction, putting words into their mouth and seeing what happens. And so in this book, yeah, Brendan Bean shows up at the Palace Bar, 
for a scene when he's talking to the 14-year-old Cyril and Julian and their girlfriends at the time. And while Brendan Bean is, uh, I think, an amusing character in the book, he says some funny things, he um, scandalises one of the girls, he's also he can also see right into the heart of Cyril. He can see what's going on. He says, I can see right through you. Mm. And he challenges Cyril to, to look at himself. Um, Eamon de Valera, Charlie Hockey, they show up in the book. Um, I guess I, I have a little bit of fun with Charlie Hockey at times. Uh, I went into the doll when I was writing it. Um, I, I, I um, went into the tea rooms. I spoke to some of the people who'd been working there for decades and they gave me some of the kind of nice little details about how the tea room operates in terms of when TDs come in and where they're allowed to sit who they sit with and the that the um the power in that room is not with the tea shock it's with the kind of the woman who runs that tea room you do not cross her can we talk about Alice Woodbeat? Uh, she's a very charming character a very engaged character a very adaptable character she marries Cyril pretty early on in the book um, can you talk to me about that? Because it is a reality that you will have, um, you know, gay women and men um, who do marry or have children and then things fall apart. Yeah, she's a very, very important character in the book. Um, as you say, she marries Cyril when um, they're both about 28. And this is the point in the book, really, where Cyril has, he's making the worst mistake of his life. He hasn't been able to come to terms with who he is and he feels it would be easier for him uh, if he simply marries a woman. Over the years, of course, that has happened, as you said, you know, so many times, I'm sure, over the decades, where gay men and women would marry just to get the um, the suspicion of homosexuality off their shoulders. Certainly in times like the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, there would have been jobs that um, would have been very difficult for a gay person to hold down. Um, and there's a cruelty there. You know, it's um, while one can sympathise with the person who has not been able to be themselves in life, you are forcing this onto an unsuspecting other. And I think that's quite quite sad and quite harsh, especially when you think that, you know, for all those years as well, it was a country that didn't have divorce. So once you were in, you were in. Alice then, um, when, you know, she then has to live a life without Cyril because um, that marriage does not last very long at all. And... When we meet her again, though, she she's torn between a, a certain sense of bitterness towards him um, and a sense of like practically wanting to kill him half the time, but also an affection for him. And uh, she's trying to understand what he went through because she is a she is a kind, forgiving, thoughtful person. But she 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 can't and she shouldn't put aside the fact that he he has caused her great trouble in her life. I thought it was a very interesting exploration because from a reader's perspective, it was it's difficult to knock Cyril all the way through the book because he gets so many knocks through life anyway. And it's very hard to make a call on just how selfish that decision was. There's blurred kind of moral uh, stuff at play there. So it's very hard to figure out. So you're you're in between as a reader. I, I'm glad you say that because I feel in novels that's what you should have anyway. Uh, I think in, in novels should represent real life. And in real life, we're all capable of kind acts, generous acts, and also acts of great cruelty towards others. None of us are perfect in that way. And I like the idea of somebody reaching the end of one of my novels and not being quite sure where they stand on that character. 
um, whether they sympathise with him or think he's a bit of a pig, really, at times. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly when I was writing it, I felt that way. I felt there was times where he was behaving terribly. I think that is terrible. I can understand why somebody would do it, but I don't think it's justified. I think mm-hmm. you still have to recognise that the person you are condemning to basically a, a loveless and sexless marriage is a complete innocent. They didn't ask for any of this. Um, and there are ways out of that. I mean, you could just leave the country, which mm-hmm. Cyril does. Um, but I like the idea of readers then being able to, you know, talk about the book and talk about characters and have differing opinions on it. You must have had great fun writing um, Julian's character because his throwaway comments are very lively and very energetic. Although he's a very flawed personality, he's um, very endearing in a lot of other ways. He's very redeeming in other he's ways. A rogue. He's a lovable rogue, yeah. yeah. And uh, but he's also a very interesting type in how he engages with the world and sees the world as his oyster. So and his trajectory without putting in any spoilers is very, very interesting. So that must have been a, an, an interesting journey for you to take. Well, Julian is actually though a very, very honest character and he, he does no harm to anybody. He is ludicrously promiscuous, but he makes no secret of it. And he sleeps with every woman that he can, you know, that he can possibly sleep with. But he doesn't promise them anything. He, he's very clear about who he is, that this is the life he wants to live. And he's actually, I think he's a very good hearted character. I think I set out imagining that I was probably going to make him a bit of a, you know, a bit of a pig actually himself. But I had too much fun with him and he and he's kind and he's loving and he loves his sister very much. He loves Cyril very much as his friend. And he feels very betrayed when he discovers that Cyril has had this um, longing for him for decades. You know, he feels like you should have told me. Um, Cyril feels, well, if I had of you wouldn't have been my friend. Um, and that's open to debate. But um, I, I realized that actually I just wanted to make Julian very honest and fun and let him have his way with whoever he wanted. The title of uh, the novel, The Hearts Invisible Furies, is is absolutely beautiful. It comes from um, a, a comment Hannah Arendt made about uh, the poet Odin. Um, are you? Uh, I presume you've you've enjoyed Odin's poetry through the years. I have. I have indeed. And actually, I read a very very great debut novel earlier this year called Larchfield by Polly Clark, 